Well, good morning, Grace. It's so good to be here. My wife and I feel very close to you folks. You may not see us, but we see you. And uh, we watch you every week. We have a lot of interest here. And uh, we thank the Lord for you and the, the vibrancy of the church. It's just amazing to see the life and the vitality. I mean, where do you see this, folks, these young people? This is just, they, they will go on after us, won't they? And continue on the work of the Lord. And this is what it's all about. And thank the Lord for a church that's instilling in the next generation, sowing the word of God into their hearts. And uh, that's what builds strong families and strong churches. And we praise the Lord for it. My text this morning is in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. These are very familiar verses. Time will not allow us to read the entire chapter. I would encourage you to do so by way of review later on. But in verse 14, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve you the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's name means Jehovah's is salvation. Moses changed his name from O'Shea, or help, to Joshua after he and Caleb came back with a good report out of the land of Canaan with the ten other spies. He and Caleb bravely and confidently gave a good report and encouraged the people to immediately take possession of the land that God had promised them. But they were outvoted. The majority said no. And Joshua was called the servant of Moses throughout Moses' oversight of the children of Israel. What a, what a name, the servant of Moses, which shows his unswerving loyalty and his devotion. These are irreplaceable qualities in godly leadership. Moses represents the law given to reveal our sinfulness and God's absolute holiness. The law could not save the sinner. It condemns the sinner and leads us to God's grace through Christ. Joshua represents Christ, as his name is in the Hebrew derivation of the name Jesus. Remember the angel announced, You will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Joshua was filled with the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 tells us another invaluable requirement for serving the Lord to be controlled by his Holy Spirit. He was indwelt by the Word of God, Joshua 1 verse 8 tells us. And he was always obedient to the will of God. We read in chapter 5 verse 14 a characteristic response from him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? That's the question every child of God wants to know about everything. Lord, what do you say? What does your word say about it? It doesn't matter how I feel or what the majority says. What does the word of God say? And that was Joshua's often response or question. What saith the Lord? In Numbers 32 verse 12, it is recorded that he and, Je he, he and Caleb, that they wholly followed the Lord. Totally followed the Lord. What a wonderful thing to be put on someone's gravestone. He totally, he wholly followed the Lord. Here he is at the end of a long and fruitful life. 
You can imagine, for lack of better words, what it was like to pastor over two million people as Joshua did, as their leader, we might say. He gathers all the tribes together at Shechem. And he calls for their leaders of each tribe, the elders, the officers, in a solemn assembly before the Lord. Now, I would say every time God's church convenes, it's a solemn assembly. Is not the Lord among us? Is not his word preeminent? We have sung his praises. We've invited the Holy Spirit of God to move in our midst. This is, folks, a solemn assembly. I know there are times when we call for solemn assemblies, and this is what this is for, for Joshua, but let us remind that we're on holy ground here this morning. Heaven, the angels of heaven are peering into what's going on at Grace Church this morning. They're very interested in what the gospel that is being preached and the work of the Lord. And our Lord said, when two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. The Lord is in the midst of his churches. Let's remind ourselves of these verities as we come before his word this morning. So each time we gather as a congregation, it is always a holy hour. This is an hour of decision, a time of solemn reflection. As the man of God speaks for the Lord under a solemn charge, please know when your pastor stands before you, he's under orders from on high. He is not to give his opinion or his feelings or to make you feel good or to talk about the topics of the day. He's on solemn charge. He answers to the Lord of heaven for every word that speaks from this pulpit. I often wonder if many who stand behind pulpits really realize the weight of their duty and what's at stake. We're required and compelled to declare to God's people what God has said. Spurgeon said it's quite simple. The man of God is to tell God's people what he has said. That's our duty. All true preaching explains God's word. And it brings God's people into his presence to do business with him. Before whom we will all one day give an account. Please keep that in mind. We're all headed. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Either the judgment seat of Christ or the great right throne judgment. All of us are facing that hour. And we live today with that hour in mind. The sands of time are sinking. And that hour is approaching. Death is not an escape from God in His Word, but it's a door by which we enter into a divine appointment with Him. Revelation 20 verse 11 describes it. What an awesome scene. And I saw a great white throne and Him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them, no place to hide. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to his works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now every time we meet, God is preparing someone for eternity. Every time his word is opened, every time 
The pastor preaches the word of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking. And we see here in verse 2 that Joshua is indeed the mouthpiece of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. He's not fussing at them as he might want to do. He knew they were idolaters. He knew they were living lies. They were uh, insincere, hypocritical. And he could have just dwelt on that, but Joshua knew that he had to tell them what God had said. Rehearsing, he does. He begins to recount the blessing and the favor of the Lord in their lives. Their enslavement as a nation in Egypt for 400 years. They all knew their history and their miraculous deliverance. And now to their possessing their possessions that God had promised Abraham, the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. They would live in houses they had not built and eat out of vineyards and gardens that they had not planted, the favored of the Lord. He had promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob years before, and now they were there. The scene before us, like this present hour, is an hour of decision. Time is slipping past us. The clock is ticking since we met. Think of over the world how many have slipped into eternity just since we began this time of worship. Some in a Christless eternity. Others have gone to meet the Lord face to face. For to be absent with the body, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the believing thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not in a few years or a thousand years. Today! Oh, the immediacy of the child of God who, when they leave this life, awake in heaven. Now Joshua's message to the Israelites has two sections. The doctrinal portion where he d details the history of God's dealing with them and the great things he has done for them. Our meeting together, always a time of rehearsing the great glories of our God, his attributes, and the blessings of the Lord. We're to remunerate them. We're to call to mind. The psalmist says, the Lord daily loadeth us with benefits. Oh, may our hearts never, ever tire of rehearsing what God has done. For this church, you have times of rehearsing. This today rehearsed a year of instilling the scripture in these, these children. Oh, what a milestone. How, how, how full we ought to be when thinking about what the Lord, and we say proud and not in a, an ungodly way. He details the history of God with them, what he's done for them and what he's done through them in verses 1 through 13. And secondly, he applies all of that to them. In our text in verses 11 through 27, to exhort them to truly give themselves over to the Lord. Now, I mentioned the first portion, the instruction, the doctrinal portion, just in passing. My comments will center around my text in verses 14 and 15. As I do the work of an evangelist here, and every God-called pastor and preacher is to do the work of an evangelist. Wherever we are, Spurgeon said, wherever you take your text, head for the cross. And he meant that to press upon his preachers and those who would stand in God's stead. The lateness of the hour, the eternity that yawns out there before us, and the need to press people to Jesus Christ. And to present the claims of Christ and to urge you to totally follow him and to give yourself over to him. Now Joshua, as a good prosecuting attorney, in which every evangelist ought to be, everyone who witnesses 
must know the scripture. They must know the facts. The facts that every man's a sinner. And you have to convince a sinner that, don't you? When you begin to pre present the claims of Christ, they immediately put up all their goodness and how they couldn't be, possibly be all that bad. And they're better than their neighbor. And if you think I'm bad, you ought to see my brother. All the excuses they bring up. And much of the, the prosecuting attorney, along with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to lay before them the facts, the charges, their condition, the lateness of the hour. And one by one, as a good attorney, Joshua calls witnesses to the witness stand to testify against the nation of Israel. First, he summons Abraham. Could there be any more compelling witness against the Israelites of salvation by grace and the glorious conversion than their father Abraham? Oh, they revered Abraham, revered him, looked up to him. Remember when our Lord presented his claims to the Jews, what was their response? Oh, we're Abraham's seed. It's like in Birmingham, Alabama, if you knock on someone's door and present the claim of Christ. Oh, I'm a Baptist. I've been baptized. I, I joined the church at 12 years of age. And that was their response to, to uh, uh, our Lord. Oh, we're Abraham's seed. As if racially they would get to heaven. Who believed, their father Abraham believed that in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. One of the most important keys to understanding the call of God, of course, is found in the New Testament in Galatians 3 and verse 6. The New Testament, you know, is the commentary on the old. And there we read, when Abraham heard, remember he was a heathen worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldees, didn't know his right hand from his left hand, didn't know the one true God, when the gospel came to him. How so? Well, Galatians tells us, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, what did he believe? How was it counted to him for righteousness? Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham, not racially, but those who have believed on the Lord by faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. How will every nation on earth be blessed? Revelation tells us there's from every tribe and nation on earth who will be in the great chorus of heaven through the gospel, through the coming of the Messiah. That's how everyone on earth will be blessed, potentially, through the Messiah that would come through Abraham. And these promises were made to Abraham before he and Sarah ever had a child. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Again, our Lord, when they said, we be Abraham's seed, our Lord said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. How was he rejoicing? He was looking forward to the coming Lamb of God who would die on the cross and pay for our sin. Romans 4 verse 5 tells us, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, reckoned to him, for righteousness. Then he calls not only Abraham to the witness stand. Oh, Joshua is a good prosecuting attorney. He has all the bases covered. He suspects every question and he thinks ahead. And so he brings two unlikely witnesses, one likely witness, the other I don't think I would have called to the court to witness. Have you ever watched one of these true crime stories? I hope you haven't, but uh, I mean, I, they're, they're interesting, aren't they? And you, you see people get on the witness stand, you say, why did they call him? He's not a good witness. 
Don't you feel embarrassed sometimes for people? Even the news will give us somebody and they're just stumbling and bumbling through this. Well, that, that'll never work. They'll never believe it now. That person was not a good witness. Now, Jacob I would have called, but Esau, I don't know if I would have or not. And yet, we must see it in its context. He calls the twin brothers, though one was justified and the other was the profane and immoral man. These two witnesses were sobering, sobering reminders that salvation doesn't come through natural generation or physical or racial ties. Romans 9 verse 11, that chapter that so clearly outlines the election of God. We see there in Romans 9 verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth the effectual call. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. No mother wanted to hear that. So ingrained was their culture, the firstborn, the whole doctrine, the whole teaching of the whole belief of the firstborn. We see it all the way through scripture to the elder brother, down all through the scripture. And their mother was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? That puts all mouths to silence, doesn't it? When Jehovah, who can choose any word in the vocabulary to express it, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? God forbid. He calls Josh, uh, 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 Jacob and Esau. And, and could there be any more sobering passage in all the Word of God? It ranks right up there with our Lord's warning in Matthew 7 that causes the hair on your head to, to stand up when you hear, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth or practices the will of my Father which is in heaven. Where there's been a work of grace, there will be fruit, a lifestyle of holiness. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, the term of surrender, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have we not prophesied, preached in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And I, our Lord is speaking, will profess unto them, I never Never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work or practice sin. And now godly Joshua, the servant of the Lord, an able prosecuting eternity, attorney, does not stop with Abraham and Jacob and Esau. He could have nailed home his case there. But then he calls the whole nation to the witness stand. And he summons them to the court of heaven and we see the courtroom. God is the righteous judge, seated in an unrivaled perfection. He has spoken. His unwavering law has been given to these people, and they all knew it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the self-existent title of God without beginning and end. What was his name? I am. Moses said, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am sent me. Unrivaled, unmatched, unequal, uncreated. Before time and after time. Always in the present. I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods 
before me. Thou shalt not make into thee any graven image as an idol, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down before them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He tells us, doesn't he? I want all of you, every bit of you. I created you. I gave you the breath you breathe, the soul that's in your body. You're mine by creation. I am the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Later upon entering the land of Canaan, they will have a second reading of the law, Deuteronomy, which means the second giving of the law. They were without excuse, as everyone is under the sound of my voice this morning. How many times have you heard God's word? How many times have you heard the gospel? I call you to the court of heaven and charge you with the abuse of a message that has been given to you if you've not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were without excuse. They were very familiar with the ways of Jehovah. They had been highly favored of Him. They had witnessed His miraculous deeds on their behalf and His gracious provision for those 40 years of disobedience when they were under the judgment of God, yet He still loved them and cared for them and protected them. They would have been sitting ducks in the wilderness had the Lord not surrounded them and protected them and fed them miraculously every day. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. Even in discipline, God had been gracious. And oh, we could say the same thing. The sun came up on us this morning. Every one of us, the lost and the saved alike. The blessings of God we've enjoyed and still yet some have sinned with high hand. In light of all this and all that he's done, we see in verse 13. And he's given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you built not. And you dwell in them, and the vineyards and the olives which you planted, you, do not eat, not, you planted not do you eat. Now therefore fear the Lord in light of his goodness, in light of his provision, in light of his favor, Fear, worship, reverence the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. We see in that text the true components, the real components of true conversion for a person to be saved here in verses 14 and 15 but before we examine them, let me answer another obvious question you may be asking here. And in light of all that we've seen and what has been rehearsed here in this chapter by Joshua, the question arises, Pastor, weren't they already the people of God? Was not the audience that Joshua was preaching to and laying the charges of God, weren't they already saved? And in the answer, the answer is yes and no. They were redeemed as a nation racially, all of them out from the land of Egypt. But to picture the Passover lamb, the shedding of the blood, which pointed to the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all observed that as a race, as a people, and were led out by the Lord. But the Bible tells us that a mixed multitude came out, believing and unbelieving. And so we might say they were redeemed as a nation of people unto the Lord. But many of them were not saved. Many of them did not know the Lord savingly. 
And later the apostle Paul explained in Romans 10, where, there, where he writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God. They're religious, but not according to knowledge, not a heart knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about, they establish their own righteousness. Which every religious person who thinks they can be saved by their own works apart from Christ, they have to come up with a righteousness that can be obtained. If you're going to work to get yourself to heaven, you've got to bring it down where you can do it. A God that you can manage. And so, like the Pharisees of old, they, they work around the requirements. And they decide that they're saved by their works. They've not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God, which is perfection. Our Lord was absolutely perfect. And it requires perfection to enter heaven. And none of us, if we're honest, are perfect. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. James tells us to offend in one point is to offend in all. We have a problem. Only perfect people go to heaven, and there's not one of us that's perfect. What do you do with that? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven. In other words, by their own works. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what, says, what does it say? The word is nigh thee. And even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that God has raised him up from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And with confession, the mouth, confession is made into salvation. The scripture saith, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now you know that Joshua's audience was an audience of Jews. By race and by association, but not all of them truly knew the Lord savingly. We're not all saved simply because our parents were. God has no grandchildren. He has children, but no grandchildren. Now, I digress here when LeGrand told me the Lord was leading him to become your pastor. I have to admit to you, that was not the best news I'd ever heard. <laughs> it was my right arm. And uh, I remember saying in so many words, well, you sure are going to miss your children, aren't you? <laughs> that didn't set well either. So uh, I said, you could come see them every once in a while, but they're, they're not moving to Kingston, <laughs> Tennessee. Of course, you saw who won out. But Kathy and I have always felt we have nine grandchildren. They're just like our children. We treat them just like they were our children. And we feel that way. But God has no grandchildren. They're all first generation. We're all children of the Lord by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The males in that audience listening to Joshua that day had all undergone surgery, marking them as a possession of Jehovah, and yet that religious ritual had not saved them. They needed a spiritual surgery on the heart, radical and real and divine as Paul says in Romans 9, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. 
but not all truly Israelites savingly that are Jews by nature or by birth. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called children. We are children of the Lord by personal faith, conversion. Now Joshua knew that the vast majority before him secretly worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. They had adopted them. Many of them worshipped the gods of their Mesopotamian fathers. And as one has put it, that those teraphim which were once hidden in Rachel's tent were never quite purged from Jacob's family. You know the besetting sin of Israel was always idolatry, which eventually led them into exile and destruction. Joshua could not put up with their double-mindedness. Oh, they sang the glory of the Lord on the Lord's day and then worshipped their idols all the rest of the time. As James puts it, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded or a double-souled is what it really means. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. The great lie of Satan, which many people on the church rolls have believed and lived by is, and profess to be followers of the Lord, is that you can have it both ways. You can have your idols and you can have the Lord. There's an outward show of Christianity, but on actual unchanged inner man that loves and covets the world and its ways. And this is what Joshua is pressing upon this people just now. Is they're possessing, he's passing off the scene. His influence is about to leave. And he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Our Lord, however, made it unmistakably clear in Matthew 6 verse 24 you cannot that's an absolute isn't it you cannot serve God and you fill in the blank whatever he uses the word mammon money sex popularity your work whatever you fill in the blank you cannot serve two gods Jehovah will not have it he didn't put up with it with them and he will not put up with, with us today in that way no man can serve two masters for either he will yet hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Notice the components required here in conversion. Outlined in verses 14 and 15. Look there in the first part of verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. This is a Holy Spirit work whereby the sinner is shown that the Lord is real and that His Word is true and binding and that the claims of Christ are what they are. That fear cannot be worked up. It is a fear that's given by a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Only the Lord, through His Word and by His Spirit, can awaken the sinner to their condition and who He is. And the salvation that He offers is real and the need of their great need and quicken them so that they may repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and truly reverence Him. This fear of the Lord is not a religion. This is a Holy Spirit work. Pharaoh epitomizes the heart attitude of an unbending sinner. In Exodus 5 verse 2, when he was presented the claims of the Lord, remember what he said? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. That's the indictment, that's the description of a lost person. They do not know the Lord. Whatever else they know, whatever part they may play, whatever they may look like, no matter what religion, how religious they may be, they do not know the Lord savingly. 
The Holy Spirit must reveal these things to a lost person. And he uses the preaching of God's word to do so. There must be a holy reverential fear before someone will repent and turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. Look there again in verse 14. Not only are we to fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. This service is a result of true repentance. We, we see it in the, 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 the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember that proud Pharisee with license from the, the, the chief priest to exterminate all he could find in the, that followed in the ways of the Lord. When he was shown who Jesus Christ was in that miraculous way, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit showing us our need and who he is. What was Saul's immediate response? Lord, what will thou have me to do? Not to be saved, but as a result of it. Now that he saw that your Lord in that moment of conversion there, Saul, the, one of the true signs was, Lord, what am I to do now? I'm a, I've been on the wrong track. Could you find a more religious person than Saul? Crossed every T, dotted every I, head and shoulders above the rest. He knew his lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, something that most of them couldn't do by then. He had it memorized. And yet he said, Lord, humbled to dirt, blinded, Lord, Lord, what will you have me do now? I had it all wrong. I thought I was right. I was just a religious zealot. In Acts 9, verse, the Bible tells us, suddenly light shone round about him from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Lord, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will you have me to do? When a sinner has been reduced to the bare essence of their sinfulness, their wretchedness, all they can cry out is, Lord, what will you do? What, what, what will you have me to do? Remember that the Philippian jailer, what was he told to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. True conversion brings a willing response. I wouldn't give you 50 cents for someone's proposed conversion where there's no interest in the things of the Lord, a zealousness to know more about Him, a desire to follow Him, no matter how feeble it may be, it starts and fits, but yet in their heart, they are the Lord's, they know it, and they will follow Him or die. True conversion brings a willing service, a desire to obey, a desire to want to know, a desire to be affiliated with the people of God, to come under the Lord's authority by His Word, and, and, and to see the obvious progression and the results of, uh, that we see here. True conversion brings a deep love for the things that Christ loves. He loves the church and gave himself for it. He loves holiness. He loves his word. Again in verse 14 we see a, a mark of true conversion. Put away the gods of your former life. And what? Serve the Lord. Be a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus said... Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself daily. In verse 15 here, he presses their immediate decision. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I want you to know that salvation is always the eternal present. When you're talking with someone about their conversion, are you truly a child of God? Are you truly saved? And they'll always go back to some point in the past, won't they? When I was 12 years old, I went to camp. I walked the aisle. I was baptized. They give you all kinds of things. And that may, all, that may very well be when they were converted, but... What about today? So often we hear about somebody who 
supposedly came to the Lord 50 years ago, there's no fruit, there's no, there's no life, there's no zeal, there's no following the Lord. Salvation is always in the eternal present. And to those who may not be converted under my voice, you're not saved this morning. I want you to know that now is the time. Today is the day. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews who was urging those Jews who started coming to Christian assemblies and they enjoyed what they heard. They enjoyed the singing and the worship and they were interested in it. They had tasted it. They had gotten a taste of what it was like, yet they had not fully believed on Christ for salvation. Notice the urging, notice the words. Now, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, and rest here is salvation, any of you should seem to come short of it. Do you see the burden on my heart today as an evangelist? I've come to deliver the Lord's message of salvation. But I know that there are those who will say, well, I'll think about this. I'll, I'll get to this later. I'm going to think about what you had to say lest any of you should come short of it. Someone has said to be almost saved is to be almost converted, but to be almost saved is to be forever lost. Almost saved. There's no such thing. That's like being almost expecting, almost pregnant. There's no such thing. You either are or you're not. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith, in them that heard it. For we which have believed, those who are saved, who've entered into that rest, as he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In this place, again, if they shall enter into my rest, if you're going to enter into salvation's rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in. There's never a group of people meeting like this that someone is lost who needs to hear the message of salvation as it was first preached, entered not in because of what? One sin that will send a person to hell because of unbelief. They entered not into that rest because of unbelief. And he limited in a certain day, saying in David, today, 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 after so long a time as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Every time, that Pharaoh heard the claims of Jehovah, he hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. Preachers preach to so often people whose hearts have been hardened by rejecting the truth they've heard. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There therefore remaineth a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy he saved you. You must come to a time where you stop trying to save yourself and rest wholly in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's the means that God has used. If he's opened your heart today, if he's pricked your heart with his word, that's the reason he gave it. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, it does surgery on the soul and is a discerner of the thoughts and the, inner, in, in, the, thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees you as you are today. We see you, we all see each other as we are our best today. 
But God the Holy Spirit searches the heart and sees us as we really are. And he says, today, today, salvation is always in the present. You cannot recall yesterday. Not one of us in this room could ever recall back a second this past. And none of us can guarantee, there's not a person who can guarantee me you'll be here next Lord's Day. No one can. You're one heartbeat from eternity. When we ordain young men in our church, and one of the things in LeGrand's ordination service, I charge these young men, when you're preaching the Word of God, do not ever let your audience feel that they have another opportunity than the present opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ. It is absolutely high-handed foolishness to say some more convenient day on thee I'll call. I'll think about it, preacher. What you said today is very compelling. And I realize my need. But I'm not ready yet. I always wonder, what would a person have to be ready for? The hearse to be at the door? To come carry us away to the funeral home next door? Waiting for what? Are you getting any younger? How has it worked so far? I always ask sinners who know the truth and have refused to believe on Jesus Christ, how's that worked for you up to this point? And what if you were called to do eternity as we say the closing prayer this afternoon? What if your heart's, what if that, stro that stroke hit? What if you were in a wreck out here and entered into eternity? Where would your soul go? Where would you be? I was a member at Grace Church. I went, all those things matter not if the fear of the Lord has not brought you to a place of repentance as it did Saul, as it did Joshua to those people before he left them. Isn't it something that the closing sermon by the man of God was choose you today. Who's you're going to be? Now if you have no interest in these things, this message is not for you. If you have no interest in the things of Christ or your condition eternally, without, I'm not talking about those who have the assurance of salvation. You know that you're the Lord's. I would cry out with a writer of Hebrews and with Joshua. If it seemed evil to you to serve the Lord, can you imagine how could that be evil? If it seemed evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, can you imagine? What did they do? Did they deliver them? Did they set them free? Did they provide for them? Did they feed them? Those idols, those your father, which your father served the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Gracious Lord, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would take your word just now and apply it to every heart. We're so thankful that we don't have to be in a certain place or a certain time to call on the name of the Lord. We heard from those we saw the life of the apostle paul and these this audience that joshua was preaching to and as even peter on the day of pentecost he urged them to repent and believe the gospel just then and then where these folks are in their hearts and their minds in the pew where they are they can believe on the lord jesus christ and so we pray the holy spirit of god would search every heart and mind and may those outside of christ find him sweet and find it, what well, all, Lord, you've promised you would do. You will save the sinner. There's no one who's gone too far, no one who's done too much, no one who can be outside the realm of grace. 
If, they will, if their hearts have been stirred and open, they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bless your gospel today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>